Hello and welcome to Tech Chat Tuesday for Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. I'm Ken Rimple. Sue John Tapadia. Jason Stelzer. And yes, and joining us this week is Jason Stelzer. Uh, he's uh, new to Chariot and uh, uh, we're welcoming him. We're going to talk with him a bit about Rust up front. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to just bring up a few things. Let me put my uh, screen up here. We'll talk as usual every week. We talk about some of the things that are happening at Chariot. So let's get into that. Um, first of all, um, here we go. So first of all, on our website, uh, if you go over to the uh, resources and look at our blog, we've got tons of stuff all the time coming up on the blog. Um, you know, nothing specifically new here this week, but just wanted to point out if you go to the resources blog link, link that's where that is. Um, this video is available not only on live streaming, but also on our Chariot TechCast podcast. And so if you go to resources podcasts, you'll see the TechCast right there. You can subscribe through RSS or you can go to iTunes or, well, I guess Apple Music now, but uh, you can go to that or you can go to Google or um, uh, Amazon or what else? We're on Spotify and a few other places. So you can subscribe to this uh, feed and get it every week. Um, we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, if you go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions, you'll see all of our videos there. So in addition to, uh, you know, the Tech Chat Tuesdays, which does have a playlist here, uh, you'll see uh, it's uh, National Women's Month. And so we have uh, all of our amazing women speakers uh, from beginning of all of our recorded talks all the way through today. Uh, we have a Philly Emerging Tech Super Playlist for our upcoming event for Philly Emerging Tech. Uh, so everything we have in video, you can look at and, and view there. And it'll take a long time to get through it because we've done it for well over 13 years now. Uh, and there are other things for specific yearly events that we've done from, you know, uh, uh, single page applications webinar we've done, IoT, you name it. So that's all available at youtube.com slash chariot solutions. Also, uh, we have an event coming up on Thursday, uh, 30 years of Linux and open source software. So this one, you know, we're going to be talking first, uh, Aaron Mulder and I are going to be talking about Chariot and what we've done in open source, both in consuming it and any contributions we've done, which we have done different contributions through either writing or writing books or what have you, uh, and contributing to open source projects uh, is one of the things we've done uh, for the community. So we'll talk about that up front. Uh, and this is on March 18th, 2021 at 3.15 p.m., uh, which is Thursday. Uh, and then in addition to that talk, we're going to have a featured special guest, Nithya Ruff uh, from Comcast. She runs the open source office there. And also she is the chairman, uh, chairwoman of the Linux Foundation Board of Directors. Uh, and that's an interesting organization that basically funds uh, building of the Linux kernel uh, and Linus Torvald's work. So it would be interesting to hear her perspective and what she uh, deals with in her role and where she sees the community heading and the types of things they're working on right now. And that's followed by a happy hour uh, at uh, around 5 p.m. Be online using Gather. So again, free, just hit, uh, you know, we'll have the link in the show notes here, but if you go to Chariot Solutions, go to events, you'll see uh, you can register for free and sign up. And then of course our big event uh, coming up May 4th to 6th is Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise. Uh, you know, again, we're doing this this year virtually. Hopefully by next year, everything is smoothed out where we can actually have an, an event in person again. But we've got a lot lined up. In fact, we've got an amazing set of speakers, um, specifically because we can actually ask people to, to attend online. We've actually got some speakers we wouldn't normally get. So May 4th to 6th, 2021, the tickets are about 89 bucks. Um, really good value. We're going to do, I think, five to six hours a day, if I'm re remembering that correctly. So it's not a complete day of Zoom. 
uh, and you know, looking into different things we can do in the mornings as well. One of our featured keynotes is Alan Kay. Uh, Alan Kay is a pioneer in computing science. Uh, one of the things he did was uh, invent one of the first graphical user interfaces that was used. Steve Jobs saw that at Park and then basically stole the idea to build the Macintosh and the Lisa. Uh, and so the, the rest is history. Also at the beginning of object-oriented programming, helped to find that as well. So he agreed to speak and that's just fantastic. Um, we've also been lining up and I think we're pretty close to done with all of our list of speakers. Kent Beck, the founder of Extreme Programming, uh, is also a speaker that we have, uh, as, as well with uh, some others as well that you'll recognize the names of if you've been to ETE before. But um, and anyone want to chime in here on their, their favorite speakers? I, I have so many that I think I've mentioned a few of them, different episodes, but obviously Kent Beck, Brian Getz uh, are definitely excited. Glad to see Jessica Kerr coming back. Yeah. And I can't wait for Alan Kay's keynote. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. So that's at phillyemergingtech.com. Again, very low cost tickets. And we will have, as we did last year, we'll have an interactive Slack channel running and a lot of communication back and forth. So we're trying to capture that hallway chatter uh, by using uh, you know, Slack instead. And it worked pretty well last year. Thought we had a lot of engagement from people who were attending. And that, that was great. Are we doing a pod or tech chat during ET or in a break period? We might. I'll have to take a look and see what, what the options are. I know I'm going to be one of the room moderators, and I'm going to be doing potentially a workshop uh, before one of the days, but I, won't, I don't want to announce that until that's actually listed. So, um, But I'll try. We might do it like in the evening after the second yeah. day or something. be great to do. Yeah. Cool. All right. So let's get into some news then. Um, first things first. Um, Let's talk a bit about Rust. So, Jason, you're here to talk about uh, Rust. You brought up in one of our chats uh, in Slack at Chariot uh, a bunch of operating system utilities in Rust was kind of led us down this road. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved in using Rust and what you like about it. Um, it was kind of organic. Um, I've programmed in a bunch of different languages. Um, it feels like every week there's a new language that somebody's starting. <laughs> um, Rust isn't really that new. Rust is finally reaching a point where it's mature enough that, I mean, there's a lot of big players and a lot of big hype around it. And, you know, I decided to take a look for myself. Um, there's a really big crowd of folks who are using it for doing like operating systems or systems level programming stuff. Um, you know, um, you know, people who are, you know, uh, working on some, you know, interesting problems, um, stuff that, you know, you wouldn't normally think of um, in terms of like, you know, your more common higher level garbage collected languages. Um, the value proposition that Rust brings to the table is pretty remarkable. Um, I've done, all, I've, I've, I've put my time in in writing C code. I never want to go back to writing C code. Um, <laughs> it's, it's very fiddly. I mean, I can write correct C, but it's hard to get right. Rust is interesting in that its value is um, it takes an entire class of errors and problems off the table in exchange for, you know, you sort of being very upfront and declaring the lifetime of your data structures and how you're composing things. But what it delivers is, you know, the native speed, so you get the performance, no garbage collection, no overhead. Um, and it's opening some doors to writing some code that's like much more secure, much more provably right than a lot of things have been historically. 
and it's not just my opinion. I mean, Amazon's going all in on it. Um, Firecracker is a very interesting project. The Rust community is very welcoming. Um, there is a page up, you know, called uh, Are We Web Yet, which basically is a like Wikipedia style page of all these projects for like, you know, web type projects. If you want to make a REST service, if you want to, you know, access a database and, you know, do that sort of a thing, these are tools you can use. So it's not just systems. Um, there's another page similar to that for video game programming. Um, obviously, they have a bunch of stuff for doing systems level programming. Um, the hype is real. There are some very intelligent people doing some very cool things with it. Um, and I kind of feel like I'm late enough to the party that a lot of the rough edges have been sort of smoothed over. Um, the language has done a lot of like feature releases. And I think that it's, you know, if not already approaching, um, you know, a very viable option. Um, there's, there's a lot of honest effort going into it. So I feel like it's something to, you know, keep up with. It really intrigues me. And, you know, just from using it, even for my own sort of somewhat trivial exercises, it's been very pleasant to work with. Um, is it, is it go? It's not go. Um, Go is much more concise and forthright. If, like, you know, you declare your class, you start solving a business problem, you iterate, lots of speed there. Um, is it C? Not by a long shot. Um, and there's nothing inherently wrong with C, but I mean, you have to take into account that C is hobbled, sort of, in my opinion, by the fact that it bends over backwards to maintain backwards compatibility with standards that are older than I am in some cases. Um, it, it's both a pro and a con. And this is, you know, if you'll forgive the uh, comparison, you know, a reimagining of a lot of decades of lessons into something that doesn't have the same baggage that hopefully we can build and pivot onto. It's very exciting, frankly. There's a really good video uh, that you brought to me. Um, uh, Brian Cantrell, I believe it is, uh, mm -hmm. if I'm correct. So I'm going to just show mm -hmm. a still from that. But it's called... Um, what is it? Uh, is it time to rewrite the operating system in Rust is the name of the video. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's, it's, that seems to be a really nice introduction uh, for people who are curious about it and want to know what makes people really passionate about it. Uh, you covered a lot of the bases there, but it's also kind of fun if you don't know the origins of Unix and you know, kernel and things like that. <laughs> it's a really, like he mentioned uh, the, the Burroughs systems and the master control program. And I actually interned at Unisys in the beginning of my career, and I actually wrote a series mainframe algal code and Wiffle <laughs> workflow code yeah. and booted up, uh, you know, MCP processes and firmware. So uh, it just, is, it cracks me up. I'm like, I'm that old. Okay, I get it. <laughs> but uh, well, I think that his talk is very valuable in the sense that it connects how we got here. Yeah. Like, this isn't, this isn't like some, you know, um, overnight vision bolt out of the blue. There were serious lessons that went into this, and there's been serious discussions, and they have very public, you know, RFCs and and, and design sessions around solving specific problems. This is sort of like a, uh, you know, meritocracy gone right. Yeah, you, know, you take the best and brightest, and you absorb, and you you iterate, and you pivot. Um, it's not all perfectly and wonderful, but it's a process that it works really well. And I think that the historical perspective makes you appreciate more what it's trying to be able to get us to do. And then finally, mm -hmm. I think that the other thing to bear in mind is that right now today, if you are writing stuff in Rust, you can still use all those C libraries in your program yeah. and right. vice versa. You can embed Rust in C. So the composability is there. It's not like a all or nothing proposition. So that's what really, really hooked me was they're not proposing you throw everything away and do it again. 
Um, you know, Google Google uh, over this uh, recently was backing some people in some very public open source projects to rewrite components of their stack in Rust for the sake of safety. Yeah. You know, as part of their uh, security initiatives. Like, I think that 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 speaks well of this approach. Yeah, like you're saying, when it removes a large class of errors, and a lot of those errors for those systems tend to be memory safety issues, so Rust doesn't mm -hmm. fit. So I guess I have two kind of dumb questions I may know the answers to. One, is the ID support for things like Rust and all the things you were talking about, like lifetime scope, et cetera, like, is there a good support for that? Well, I'm kind of a curmudgeon and still do everything in Emacs. Sure. Um, however, there are some very nice Rust um, plugins for VS Code. Um, and, you know, in a surprising twist of events, um, Microsoft Windows is a first-class citizen in this. Like, what? Rust works well on Windows as well as Mac as well as on Linux. That's a big deal, actually. And it's a really big deal. Um, you know, that's part of the lineage of Rust. I mean, Rust was initially started by Mozilla as a way for them to, like, build this cross-platform thing that, you know, I mean, we all remember the old days of those really chunky um, Java op widgets, right? Um, they don't want a browser that looks like that. They needed to come up with something that was going to like be native speed and look nice. Uh, right. You're, you're tugging at my heartstrings in a bad way when you said all. Well, we all have our uh, PTSD. <laughs> um, and then the other question is, I mean, since Google is like, for example, the Android team, you know, they're fully supporting Rust and they're rewriting some of the lower level kernel modules in Rust. I'm curious, is Rust taken off in the embedded in IoT space? Or are you kind of cognizant of those areas? I'm not super aware of it. Um, I've seen some side projects with folks doing stuff for iOS. Um, it's mostly at the proof of concept phase. Okay. Um, it wouldn't shock me, um, but you know, that that kind of gets to some of what he's talking about in his talk about rewriting the operating system. Um, a firmware written in Rust, that would be kind of interesting. That was the thing that I remember hearing that really kind of got me interested because I know a lot of firmware issues, they're hard to debug because they're firmware. You don't have access to them, you know, mm -hmm. and you got to wait for the vendor to, to take care of things like memory leaks and issues with, you know, interfacing and such. And if Rust is a better language to write that kind of thing in, um, it could mean better stability for those drivers. I guess the other thing would interest me is I think in terms of education, high schools, colleges, whatever, boot camps, et cetera, you know, sounds like Rust could be a, a great language to teach people programming and, and to kind of instill certain good practices and principles and get a better understanding of like, what are you doing when you write a program? What is happening to the data? Where is it getting stored? How is it getting referenced? What, like, it's probably very educational and could make you a good programmer if that's one of the first things you learn. I have mixed minds on that. Okay. Um, and I think it's because we finally evolved to a point where our styles of computing are on very different tracks. And I don't mean that to be exclusionary, right? Um, if you wanna hire a person to help your business, um, you know, do some data manipulation or analysis or whatever, um, I don't necessarily think you need to understand, you know, pointers and C and all that stuff. At the same time, somebody has to build this stuff. Um, as a first language, I mean, I don't know that I'd want to try to make someone learn either C or Rust first. Um, honestly, I think they're going to start with JavaScript because it's in all of our browsers. I mean, you don't have to go get anything. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think that learning programming is a structured way of thinking and that the different languages layer on top of each other. Um, that's Yeah, that's probably fair. I know I've spent my entire life, this is embarrassing, 
but I've been spent my entire life avoiding C <laughs> yeah, because I've been doing a lot of software development of applications and haven't needed it. But um, if you're writing an operating system or you're writing a driver, certainly that's the space you're going to be in. You know, yeah, my concern. Yeah, I don't think Rust is a language that I'd use for like any in everything, right? Or data engineering or application development. It depends on it has a fit in certain areas. But I mean, I feel like there's many people that do learn programming for a long time without understanding certain fundamentals and it, that concerns yeah. me. So I, you know, I just based off of what a little I've read about Rust, it definitely has certain things that I think are core concepts that are good to be aware of. May not be something like you, like you said, Jason's probably not appropriate as your first language. And it's probably not even something that I would put onto a, a, a young student to, to learn first. But I don't know, I, I, the other extreme is people have spent their entire career only doing JavaScript and some of them are fantastic programmers, but you know, some never have tried to look under the hood any further. Yeah. yeah. And I think it comes down to, you know, are you a hardware engineer or are you in business computing? Uh -huh. And right. again, not being exclusionary, you're, you're solving different problems, you're bringing different skills to the table. And more importantly, do we really think we can cover like all of this in like four years in school? Oh, no. Of course, so hard. Yeah. It's more of an art. So it's a should it should it be taught? Should it be mentioned and explained? Absolutely. But like, you're not going to get your mastery out of, you know. Oh, of course. Study period. So, um, you know, I yeah. I, obviously, I'm all in on it. I really believe that Rust is bringing a lot of value to the table. Um, I think everyone should learn it or at least be aware of it. My wife doesn't agree with me. <laughs> I like that you have this debate. <laughs> Um, I, you know, about it. I get it. <laughs> right. My, my thought there is that like in a computer science curriculum, if you had like, uh, you know, introduction operating systems and you were building an operating system from scratch and see, it would be interesting if someone took on doing that in Rust or maybe even as like a, hey, this is done. Now look at, here's a Rust version of the simple operating system. I'm just thinking of when I was doing like DOD work for Lockheed and, and stuff we wrote and I think Rust would have been great and I would have probably felt more comfortable writing it and knowing that it's been written in Rust. Mm. Right. Yeah, and I mean, to your, that's interesting that you bring that up. I know that there are um, hobby operating systems in Rust already. You know, to prove that it works. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it's like every second system. I don't know that any of them is going to replace what we have, um, but the technology is sound, it does work. So let's move forward then a little bit and talk about some other uh, aspects of this. One of the things, that seems to be really bubbling up is command line utilities. So this is in that space of don't rewrite the whole operating system, but you know, targeted utilities, libraries, you know, pieces written in Rust. And there's a kind of a sprouting of a number of command line utilities that are written in Rust that are really nice. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about those. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I'm like that qualified for it, but okay. Um, That's right. I mean, just the ones that you use. You know? These are in my daily workflow at this yeah. point. Um, these are things that I kind of learned about by word of mouth, talking to other people. Um, anybody who's gone from one large code base to the next has probably made friends with grep to just search for where is this function defined? What is using it? That sort of stuff. Uh -huh. um, there have been a bunch of different tools. Um, grep has its own sort of issues. Uh, the silver searcher was another thing that somebody else wrote. I think that was C. I don't want to speak to that too much. Um, rip grep came up, um, you know, in, uh, as a rust ut utility, um, afterwards, um, the person who wrote it, um, you know, very smart guy was very public with how he benchmarked it and why he built it the way he did. 
And it's the fastest tool for doing what it does that I'm aware of, and it's very handy, it's very useful. Its command line is pretty much a drop-in replacement for grep. Um, so the, the, the barrier to entry is pretty low. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yep. Um, you know, all of these are, are you know, sol solving problems that have, quote unquote, been solved. Um, but for performance reasons, um, work better. Um, in some cases, usability reasons, like FD find is a little bit more natural to new users than like the arcane, like find syntax of like the classic Unix or uh, Linux find utility. Um, again, this is my opinion. Sorry, I, I <laughs> um, find it arcane as well. So these, I, I started looking into some of these when you mentioned the other day and pretty jazzed by it actually. Yeah, um, and you know, these are, you know, open source, easy to look at things. Um, I think that the amount of work they do is tractable enough that, you know, you don't have to make a career out of working on these. Um, the fact that you can see how it's done and look behind the curtain is very, very cool. Um, yeah. As a person, like hobbyist type, uh, you know, someone learning Rust, looking at these sorts of examples is really powerful. Um, you know, to your point about teaching, I mean, you know, showing, showing, educating people about what is possible and then showing them good examples is, you know, it should speak for itself if you're, you know, in my frame of mind. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean... I like some of these tools just in general, like uh, bat instead of cat is a really nice little cat tool. Um, yeah, the text highlighting is kind of cool. Um, I liked uh, Bandwitch, mm -hmm. um, which basically shows you a sort of like top for network access. So you can see what is using how much of your bandwidth at the time. It's a weird niche thing to ask your computer, but um, there isn't really a great way to see it. Um, now there is. Yep. Pretty cool. And then um, one of the other ones was uh, a bottom, BTN, BTM, mm -hmm. if I can type correctly. So this is just a, a character UI um, tool like top, but it even has like a little character-based graph for things. It's great. I mean, a lot of these tools are just great little utilities that launch up quickly and, you know, serve a better version of the ones that you're used to. So in many right. cases. So thought they were really neat. There right. is a web, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just like go to the parent website for this, lib.rs. Yeah, right there. Mm -hmm. so just type, just get, get rid of the command line utilities for a second. Sure, right, just hit the top of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I just saw this for the first time as you were doing this and I'm like, oh my God, there's a lot of stuff here and it's not yeah. all of it. So I honestly didn't realize there was this much stuff available in the Rust ecosystem. Yeah, it's not nascent. It is a fairly mature, like it is definitely a direction that a lot of people are going. Not that everyone has to. I mean, sure. Um, in some cases, you know, you're always going to use the tools that you're familiar with and comfortable with. Um, but you know, it's, the, it's it's a very very I think compelling technology. Very cool. Oh, and um, for people doing this, I've noticed there's like a tool called Rust Up. Seems like that's the way that they recommend. A lot of people recommend installing Rust is to use the Rust Up tool. Is that what you ended up using? Absolutely. Okay. Um, especially because it's the difference between like, um, so some people like to install everything through their package manager of choice. Uh -huh. um, and that's all fine and great if you want to use that specific version of that specific software. If you're actually a developer and you're trying to keep pace with the releases as they happen, 
not using the operating systems delivery mechanism, but deciding when you upgrade your stuff makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. um, it also installs in your home directory, so you don't need special permissions. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah which is pretty nice. All right, great, thank you. Um, the next thing we have on our list actually is a little tutorial, uh, and it just a little warning about this tutorial. Don't try it on on uh, Safari or I I what is it uh, IE, which is basically who's using Internet Explorer anymore, except large large corporations who can't get off of it, um, and there's very few of those left. So um, this is a WebAssembly and Rust tutorial. So uh, this is on Toptal. Someone wrote this thing up. Um, I love the 24-minute read. There's no way you read this in 24 minutes, uh, but whatever. So Peter Sugate uh, is the person who did this. And it's using a, a library in Rust uh, through WebAssembly um, to scan 44, you know, kilosamples a second uh, with this audio library to detect what pitch your sound is. And so you get like a live running pitch of whatever you're playing uh, using that. And it can keep up because they wrote this in WebAssembly. Um, it's interesting because you get to see some of the tools in action. So, for example, you know, if you've installed, you know, Rust up and you set everything up, um, you follow things, uh, it, you know, you're you're going to be, you know, creating a, a React application, which is ultimately what's going to communicate with this core tool. Um, you end up doing, um, so here's the graphic, you end up doing something in something called an audio worklet. And a worklet uh, is kind of like an asynchronous task that runs in the browser in its own thread. The audio workload is, is geared towards web audio. So it can do that asynchronously and not interrupt the painting thread, which is really important for things like games and synthesizers and other tools that make noises and play things. Um, so it's an interesting sample from that perspective. There's a pitch processor that you build uh, that then interacts with a WASM audio library file that actually makes a call to this pitch detector. That goes back and forth. Uh, to uh, messages sent through this pitch node uh, object to communicate with the React app. So you pick, click start on the React app and it fires up this library, loads it into an audio worklet. And by the way, audio worklets are a M uh, MS, uh, MDN feature that Chrome and others are developing uh, and supporting and, and, and uh, I guess um, Firefox. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Safari isn't on board with that, which is why I want to point out that Safari isn't part of this. But, uh, you know, interesting innovation there but mainly as something to see an example of something uh, that gets involved. So also another interesting tool that I found in here in this tutorial is Cargo Generate. It reminds you of Maven archetypes. Um, so the idea is you can do Cargo Generate point to a template and it will build out a sample project for you. Um, interesting. So, you know, this one just basically sets up a, a, a WASM pack template to use the WASM pack tool to build a WebAssembly module that you can then load. Uh, and, you know, basically step you through editing the, the cargo settings file, the TOML file, to make sure you have the right libraries installed. Uh, and then uh, the pitch detection uh, is a library in Rust. So this is a, a Rust pitch detection library uh, that was then wrapped in this example to be callable by JavaScript. Uh, using the the web uh, audio compiler for Rust. So interesting, you know, I'm not going to go through the actual demo and all the code here, but an interesting little tutorial to kind of get a feel for what you could do in the WebAssembly world with uh, Rust, which is kind of neat. I'm going to put up some Hall & Oates songs through this thing, play them, and they're really, they're well known for being like perfect singers, technically perfect pitch. 
you'd probably have to isolate the singer's voice, but yeah, you can do that because it would have too much to listen to. Um, but yeah, pretty cool stuff. All right. And that's the audio workload. So we'll have links to those if you want to hack around with it. Here's one that will maybe shock you, maybe make you say, yeah, no kidding. This is silly. Um, go away, ad. Um, on Vice, there's an article called A Hacker Got All My Texts for $16. Um, and this is someone who's who um, just paid someone to hijack her SMS because you can do that because it's not a regulated uh, industry. So it turns out that you can make a request to uh, as, as a, an SMS provider to register and hijack network traffic by saying, well, no, this is really where this needs to be delivered. And you can take someone's phone number and redirect its messages to you. There's nothing preventing anyone from doing this. Um, so, and I had my notes. Of course, I can't find my notes when I'm here. Uh, my iPad's not here. But um, I'll just kind of sim through. So there are other ways that people do this. Some people swap SIMs. Uh, you know, they, 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 they do all sorts of hacking that way. Um, but in this case, they're doing it through this concept of writing a LOA request, uh, letter of authorization. So apparently, if you have the ability to write letters of authorization, there's real no, no way that that letter of authorization gets back to the original phone number owner. Hmm. That's the problem with this. So, you know, you think about all the things you get sent in text, like here's my one-time code and things like that. Hmm. Certainly, if they hijack and you don't get the text, it's obvious that you don't have messages anymore after a certain period of time. Um, but that might happen, and you might lose you know, critical traffic or critical information while people are stealing it. They're not sure how many people are doing this, but the point is that they need regulation in the SMS space because there's no, there's no rules around notifying people that their you know, text messaging numbers have been changed or going back to the original owner and saying, hey, are, do you approve of this? SMS is not secure. The messages are stored in plain text on the yeah. screen, as far as I know. If you're doing if you're doing anything that you care about what you're sending or is sensitive or you don't want other people to know about, don't use SMS. I would probably just say blanket. Yes. Stop using SMS altogether. But I know that that's not realistic in certain in certain use cases. But be very very careful, and it is not secure at all. Yeah, hence the one-time codes that you can't reuse once you're you're texted them. But even those, if if someone is attacking you and they can do the right timing, I suppose they could get it. But you know, it, it would become obvious afterwards, I would think. And it probably has to go through like some sort of long time frame of a couple of hours or whatever to get the thing approved. So it's not like someone can say, and right now I'm gonna hijack this, I, I would think. But yeah. still, my, my, my paranoia goes to another level. Because I have these like paranoid thoughts at night sometime before I go to sleep and <laughs> I'll start like, you know, just going, going through the whole like internet stack, right? You know, the switches, the routers, the fiber, like think about all the stuff we rely on that we have no control over. That's private companies and governments across international boundaries that are essentially running this stuff is please for anything you do on the internet, like, you should require that everything is always at least encrypted. Yeah. You never try to do anything unencrypted because just imagine all those paths that your data is actually going through that could be malicious routers, malicious hardware, anything. You can't trust a lot of these potentially state actors or private companies. Uh, do you really trust every single chain of that pipeline with unprotected data? Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, you're speaking something that's very close to my heart, too. Um, you know, I am justifiably paranoid. 
Um, I've seen too many examples of people, um, you know, being hacked, losing data, losing, you know, uh, their entire like internet social accounts because of password reuse, because of, you know, I mean, we all understand how this works. Um, and, you know, at this point in time, I feel like the better approach, I mean, I, for, I agree with you, I would not use SMS. I try not to use SMS for anything critical. Um, I keep my uh, PGP and SSH keys on a physically separate device. This is a YubiKey, um, quick plug, uh, for all of those reasons. Um, it's just not worth the risk. Um, and if you're interested in this, the FIDO2 standard is actually a very interesting way of doing authentication that could take us to a passwordless future. Um, but I think that it'll never hit critical mass with you know, the end users because um, you know, it's a hardware thing. The, the level of savviness required, I think, would be too, too high. You saw that? Uh, FIDO2, F-I-D-O-2. FIDO2, okay. Yep. Um, you know, um, you're, you're, you're going you're to hear about it more in um, larger organizations, um, a lot of Fed stuff. Um, it's a, you know, interesting, interesting uh, standard. I kind of got sidetracked into it while I was uh, learning Rust. There's a Rust library for doing some of the back-end stuff. It, it all comes together. Um, but, you know, privacy, privacy is very important. Um, you know, I think people kind of, you know, conflate this. Well, if you have nothing to hide, then, you know, you shouldn't, you know, be worried about privacy. And I'm like, well, there's a door on my house for a reason. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, <laughs> you know privacy isn't bad. Privacy is important. Yeah. yeah. I'm getting my mic closer because I have uh, four children at home and there's some sort of conflagration going on. So I will be doing a jujitsu use of turning down the audio periodically. Sorry, everybody. I hope it's not a real conflagration because then you, I hope you have a you know, fire extinguisher nearby. Yeah, true. <laughs> I will call it a spat. Um, all right. So this is one, uh, Sujan. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Speaking of security issues, uh, so you have one on a, uh, a hack. Yeah, so um, Rakeda is a security camera company, and their cameras are used all over the world. In this case, the article cites this cameras being used in prisons, hospitals, and uh, like Tesla's car factories. And they were hacked, um, the cameras and video archive footage. So the hackers um, made themselves known um, in the interest of freedom of information and against you know intellectual property theft and things like that. They they said, we can do this, so we're gonna do it. And they hacked into these cameras to get access to the cameras and a lot of the video archive of these things. And it's sad because you know being able to do some of these things is not complicated. They were able to get it through a super admin account after getting login details of internal administration's accounts that were posted online. And I wouldn't be surprised if one, obviously posted online means someone internally or someone was compromised or compromised a company and posted stuff. So you know, in any security, architecture or framework member, there are humans involved. So you got to factor that into your solution as well. Um, and um, they were, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were default admin accounts with default passwords or gosh, no, blank passwords, meaning no passwords at all, and you be able to get this kind of um, unauthorized access. So um, they've since closed all those accounts um, and internal administration accounts. I don't think they're allowing new ones to be created and, and they're plugging the holes, but it's a huge I mean, a big attack vector, you know, surface area, and then a, a huge 
blast radius, essentially, in, in terms of all the access they got. Wow, they really did. And including the Tesla footage you know, from the tes Tesla factory, um, these different companies, the, the Madison County Jail. Wow. What I get scared of is all the, the pet projects out there on GitHub or whatever. Um, and I'm not talking about storing credentials in Git. That's a whole other thing. But yeah. is people downloading like template or sample projects and just sticking with all the defaults, even when it comes to the accounts. Oh my God. I, there's probably a ton of that out there. And it, it just, again, maybe something I, I stay up too late at night thinking about, but it scares the shit out of me. <laughs> it's not well, great. It's not great. Reasons why, like my house, in my circle of friends, I have many friends who have a very digital home. They have every device and doodad that you can think of. And I'm the opposite. You know? I mean, you know, the last thing I want is like, you know, the 12 year old down the block to hack my thermostat. It's just the <laughs> problems I choose not to have. Yeah. It's right. not that hard to get up and walk across the room to change the, you know, it's, it's okay. What? What? Um, yeah, yeah. I'm a Luddite. Um, <laughs> It's all about your risk factors. When you know you're taking a risk, it's different than when, you know, obviously you don't know. I mean, people look at packaging and, you know, make a leap of faith. And I think that that goes right down even to development. It's certainly not done through malice. It's done through, you know, being in a hurry, trying to get things done and not really thinking through the consequences of the choices that you're making. Right. And that gets exploited. Not yeah. to turn this into the security podcast, although it's become that. Um, I read a great tweet the other day. He's like, do you trust your data with a large tech conglomerate? Of course not. Or a five-person startup that can run select star on all the production data? <laughs> <laughs> this is cutting very close to the quick. Yes, I agree. Oh, that's too funny. Hey, uh, on other news, uh, AT&T is expanding fiber to the home a bit. Uh, so <laughs> they have, I guess, about 15 million people in their uh, network that are not on DSL or whatever, that are on actual fiber to the premises. And they're expanding in 90 metro areas. Now, when I read into this Ars Technica article by John uh, Brodkin, um, he, he had mentioned that uh, a lot of the areas they're expanding to are already fiber adjacent or in the fiber network. Uh, range, so they don't have to do a lot of physical infrastructure to the core of their their network. They're just extending out to certain homes, so it's not like it's a massive upgrade uh, into like you know rural areas, but it, it is a, a creeping of more um, you know fiber expansion. Um, I don't know about you. I've been I've been on FiOS for a long time, and uh, before that, I remember dealing with a lot of other networks, and it's been difficult you know, with just, you know, up and downs and, and speed and things like that. But the more people go to fiber, I think it's, at least for the wired networking, uh, it certainly is good. Um, so that's a positive thing for people who are going to be in that metro space. Hopefully Starlink keeps expanding their satellites and, and coverage area as well. We have a consultant in a rural area, and um, I believe they're on DSL, and then they have their phone 5G uh -huh. LTE. But um, so these Verizon MiFi as well, and then... Uh, T-Mobile just last week announced a business home office plan that's 5G as well, um, like 100 gigs a month or whatever. Pretty reasonable, right? So they're going to be trying that out too because they're, they're on the wait list for Starlink right now. Interesting. Yeah, it could be a real challenge to get, you know, good high-speed networking out in the rural areas, definitely. So that's that. Uh, let's see. Flutter 2 is out. Yeah. So um, I'm actually... I, I was kind of flabbergasted as at 2.0 already. Flutter has been gaining a lot of traction really fast. I only dabbled in it last year, and we had a couple people here internally also look at it. And, you know, the development experience, in my opinion, was 
really smooth, really nice. It was easy for someone who hasn't done much mobile to just to kind of get their feet wet into it. And the programmatic declarative UI development is way, way better than the visual designing or the XML layout type stuff is just far easier to compose and construct programmatic widgets into a widget tree um, and configure them. But anyway, it's Flutter 2 now. Um, it's used in a lot of places. More and more companies are adopting it. Google's adopting it internally on more of their properties. Uh, Toyota just announced that they're going to be using Flutter for their, uh, you know, infotainment systems in their vehicles. Uh, hmm. So now they announced that. We'll see if that's what they end up, you know, actually using or, or what, you know, is it like a, uh, a, a heavily like altered or modified version of Flutter that ends up landing in the vehicles. But I think it's uh, telling that a lot of companies are putting their putting their um, money and effort behind it. So, which means it's going to help the ecosystem. It's going to help the plugin ecosystem, things like that. Interesting. Here, they say that uh, if you upgrade to Flutter two, you have desktop ability. I guess before it was just iOS and Android, and you know other uh, stuff in the mobile web space. But it looks like now they've got kind of like a desktop electronic kind of yeah. Delivery. I, think, I mean, I, I know their initial purported goals were to you know be cross-platform in that meaning, not just mobile, but mobile, web, and desktop. So it sounds like they're making more uh, more head headway there. Cool, very cool. Hey, we talked about computer science earlier. Um, and I know last week, I think it was, we brought up that there was a an iOS course or something. So Harvard uh, has an updated uh, CS50 course. If you have uh, family members who are looking to get into computer science and you know they wanna get some more background in, in addition to kind of hobbying along, they can take a look at some of the basics here. Uh, so this is an 11 week course, uh, about 10 to 20 hours per week of, of work. It's self-paced, which means you don't have to keep up with everybody, which is great. Uh, and you can audit it for free. And if you want a certificate, if you've got a kid that's in high school that wants to impress the, the people in the CompuSci uh, incoming range, you can get a verified certificate as well. So that might be useful. Um, yeah, and uh, looks like they they have a decent range of things that they cover: abstraction, algorithms, data structures, and you know your typical computer science intro stuff here. Uh, but just wanted to bring that up because uh, you know with all these open courses you can grab. You know, this probably is a, a good general introduction for someone who doesn't know enough uh, about the the background. So, all right, and now this is the last one we'll have here. I think it's the last one. Nope, it's the second to last one. Uh, is you know this whole concept of deep fakes, where people are putting up, you know, uh, fake versions of people saying things or looking at people, uh, and you know, uh, making statements. Uh, it turns out that uh, you can detect deep fakes by analyzing the light reflections on the eyes because they're not of this world. <laughs> you know, they're 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 not exactly correct. So, um, kind of interesting that uh, it's an AI-based tool. Uh, and, and is developed by computer sciences from the University of Buffalo. This is on the nextweb.com by Thomas McAuley. Uh, and it looks at the corneas, right? Because the cornea has a reflectivity to it uh, and generates reflective patterns when it's illuminated by light. Uh, if it's taken of a, by a camera, the reflections will be similar because they're seeing the same thing. But when you synthesize uh, images, they, they tend to not look real. So this reminds me of... Um, What's the movie with Harrison Ford? Blade Runner, right? <laughs> you see the, like the twitching in the eyes. Oh, it's it's a replicant. But, uh, you know, you can tell and and see, I guess, by looking at these things that it's it's fake versus real. So in a real image, you'd see the, the image would have, you know, accurate reflections of the different catch lights that are there. And in, in a fake, 
you can see that it's kind of not going to be symmetrical. So that's a way that they can detect it. The other thing is the brain is not designed to care about these things. Like the minute a piece of information is released or a video or image, like it impacts people and people process it and take it for granted, right? They, they don't confirm the veracity of it. So there, yeah. there's a lot of danger to this technology, even though there's things like this to try to say like, hey, this is a fake. By the time it's probably marked as a fake, it could be too late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're literally entering the age where you cannot trust your senses. Uh -huh. yeah. It's true. Yeah. Sorry, it's true. I'm so negative today. <laughs> Stop it. No, it's fine. And the last thing is, if you haven't updated Git, you probably should. Um, it, it's unlikely if you're using GitHub that this is going to happen to you. But if you're cloning a Git repository from somewhere, apparently there's a exploit that's out there. Uh, that can let uh, a malicious repository execute remote code while you're cloning. So uh, if you do an update to Git uh, to you know 2.30.2 or higher uh, and other versions that are listed there, uh, you should be in good shape. But uh, just in case you haven't updated Git in a while, you probably should. Uh, and in general, uh, there was a, uh, is it a Rust-based utility? Sure. Uh, that, yeah, what's the one that, that they use that uh, does all the brew updates? Upgrade. Uh, yeah. What was it again? Top grade. Yeah. Top date, right? Top grade. Top grade. That's it. So I just ran that the other day and it updated a whole bunch of stuff all at once, which was kind of nice. So yeah, just uh, you know, keep your software patched. If you run that and you're just like, you know, you're not paying attention to it. I mean, I was, but and you're pressing like yes, yes, yes to everything. Just keep in mind, like for example, on the Mac, it will. If you haven't updated your Mac OS to like the latest, it patches it. Alina ten fifteen seven. It'll download everything to patch that and. It'll, you know, then restart uh, to apply those updates. But like, so if you weren't intending to do that and you're just pressing enter, enter, enter just make sure <laughs> to ask you that. So take a look at what you're saying yes to. <laughs> yeah, true. All right. And that'll about do it for this week. So uh, Jason, thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Cool. All right. So uh, for this week, this is uh, the uh, Tech Chat Tuesday. I'm Ken Rimple. Sujan Kapadia. Jason Stelzer. And have a good week.